Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. All right, everyone, welcome back to One Broken Mom. Um, yeah, as you guys know, I have discussed the topic of suicide many times on this show because it can be the result, obviously, of untreated mental health conditions. And here, it has not only been the last action taken by people that we have met that have had unresolved and unhealed traumas, but it also has become, in some way, a source of trauma for some of the survivors. We used to say, as a culture, that someone who took their own life was acting selfish. In fact, I can remember days when we, collectively as a society, would attempt to persuade someone from killing themselves by reminding them of everyone they'd be hurting and leaving behind. And it's language, actually, I still hear today out of some people who are unaware of all of the things that you, my friends and listeners, have been learning while you've been tuning into One Broken Mom. Telling someone they are acting selfish is simply another wound of guilt and shame and denying that person's feelings. You are telling them, again, that their feelings don't matter and to think of everyone else instead. You are simply reminding them of what they already feel that they don't have an ounce of energy or ability to care any more about anyone else, including themselves. So let's remember and think for a moment about this. The single imperative of our brains is to keep us alive. We are wired to survive. So when any one of us is in a place where hastening our death is the normal mode of operation, we don't just have a problem, we have a crisis. Some of you out there may know that we, my family, have been churning through this bitter and scary world of suicide ideation with my own daughter. And this specter adds a terrifying layer to all the normal adolescent parent conflicts that most families deal with. I know nothing can be taken for granted. No threat can be ignored. And I do this, my own healing and my pursuit of knowledge in this show for one reason only, to save my daughter's life and my son's, quite frankly. In fact, during the week of this recording was one of the hardest that we as a family has had to deal with for quite some time. And I had at my fingertips the phone numbers I needed to get an involuntary admittance into a mental health facility for her. In Washington State, you see, by the age of 13 years old, children must be willing to receive mental health treatment. That is, you can't force your teenagers to see a counselor or therapist if you think that they could actually benefit from it. So if you have a child who's actually... Um, in a state of mental health crisis, and they refuse to get help, you have to actually have a social worker perform an evaluation and determine if they are truly a danger to themselves, others, or property. And then your child can be forcibly admitted into an inpatient facility. These are not easy things to think about, and they are even less easy to summon the strength to do it if called upon. And so as parents with children in this state, we tend to hope and pray that it'll all get better on its own holding on to this misguided belief sometimes until it's too late. 
And so for many, suicide is not just a matter of if, but when. And that's the most terrifying thought of all. I carry this burden of constantly asking myself, what if I can't do enough? And I will never be able to let my guard down, pat myself on the back and say, I did it until I'm in my own grave. And I hope to God that that happens before my children are in theirs. Dying by suicide is a powerful and violent act of betrayal against the basic nature of our own bodies. And it takes over 40,000 people every year, more than mass shootings or homicides overall in the United States by twofold. In fact, if you look at the Centers for Disease Control statistics, suicide rates are double than homicide in nearly every state. In Washington State, where me and my guest actually live, in 2017, 266 people died by homicide, while 1,297 people died by suicide. I have never been baited into the online political debates around the gruesome acts of violence, such as mass shootings, because first, I do agree, they suck. But I am ardent that if you truly want to save lives, then drop the rhetoric. We have to pay attention to childhood experiences and traumas and talk about suicide and suicide ideation with the same passion and fervor and anger and disgust that we've allowed it to go on for as long as it has, taking lives and let alone letting it rise in our country without doing anything to prevent it. And we have to do that instead of honestly giving energy to the less meaningful, but certainly more politically divisive and interesting topics. So you're listening to today's episode during September, which is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, and World Suicide Prevention Day is following on September 10th. And I have with me Mary Angela Abeo, a photographer who started a powerful project called Faces of Fortitude, where people talk about how they've been impacted by suicide or suicide ideation, and Mary Angela captures their images to share with the world. Her Instagram account, where these portraits can be seen, is gripping. And so is her story of why she does this. So it's an honor to have her here with me today. So welcome, Mary Angela. Thank you. Ooh, I don't know how to follow all that you just read. And I don't know how you just read that without sobbing. I was like, <laughs> nice it's, job. <laughs> uh, thank you. I had to write it down. So everybody that's listening to that, yes, definitely. Um, but it's, it's true. This is, I, you know, like I said, this is an important topic to me. I've never just been only wanting to focus on this world of trauma and healing, but, you know, being able to connect it back to the fact that, you know, we see so many people that, you know, die by suicide as an adult and we link it only to maybe an experience they had at that moment. You know, they lost their job. They, you know, um, broke up or ended a relationship and haven't been able to see that that's, that's an interconnection to a path and a life of so many, you know, other things that have happened on top of that. And, um, and so for me, being able to talk about this goes hand in hand. We can't talk about self-improvement and healing and parenting without knowing that, you know, the ignoring, in my opinion, of all of that can have a devastating effect to ignore the experiences, you know, that some kids go through and their traumas. Well, I think as a mom, I'm a mom, so I, I hear it in your voice and I hear your strength and I know, um, how hard that must be for you, a mom of a daughter. But I'm also, I've been your daughter and I've been that person, but I've also lost someone too. So I feel like as an empath, I'm feeling like all three of them. And I'm like, oh, my mom heart. Oh, my young teenager heart. Oh, the heart that I know what's on the other side. God forbid that ever happens. And so um, it's a lot. So cheers to you for um, handling it and being able to tackle it after the week that you had. Yeah, it, and it has been. It's tweet a sentence. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's the thing. You should give yourself 
that. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I've had to have some conversations, you know, at work and with people and I've done a lot of napping. It's one thing that, yes. you know, uh, you know, it has been, it's kind of like, you know, I've had to sit there and really wind down and cut a lot of things out just to fill my bucket up enough to be able to stand in front of a child who needs me and show up a hundred percent for her. So now you just mentioned so many things about your life and, and faces of fortitude and why you started this. And, you know, my understanding when I originally reached out to you was that, um, as you mentioned, uh, you had a brother that had committed suicide, but then you had told me that you've also gone through this. And so where does this, this, um, this desire to do this project for the world out there, where did that, where did that come from? Where was that born from? Yeah, so I originally, you know, it's funny, that's kind of where <clears throat> it was originally born because of the loss of my brother and my, my own grief, but I'm doing a TED, my first TEDx talk in September, and I had to dive a little bit more into my history and really do a little bit of math work on where did this really stem? Like, where was my, and you know, you were talking, you talked a lot about conversations, and that's actually what my talk is about, because there is a disconnect between all of us that are connected in this arena. So when I was 17, I was sexually assaulted and I grew up with a narcissistic abusive mother who I was not close to and I don't have a relationship with to this day. So when a sexual assault happened, I didn't have anyone to talk to. And when I did go to people at the school, I was accused of exaggerating it and that I was asking for it and told that our football team was in the playoffs and it just wasn't a good time. And so I immediately panicked and I went home and I took every pill I could find in the house. And my brother was 11 years old and he found me with my sister. And what happened at that point is what I believe was um, essential that no one had a conversation with him about what happened that day. Mm -hmm. He didn't know I was trying to die. He didn't know what suicide was. And so 15 years later, he takes his life do I think it was because of me? No. But do I think that it opened a window of possibility for him that that is an out? Absolutely. Do I think it would have helped if I could have had a conversation with him as a teenager and said, listen, this is what happened that day. And I'm always here if you ever want to talk. But I wasn't able to have that conversation. And so as I'm growing this project, I'm realizing that that's what I'm creating are these conversations. So um, I was a, I'm was a trained producer. I'm not a trained photographer. Well, now I'm a photographer. I was going to say, really? Because you're a beautiful photographer. Like, the I portraits now. are amazing. Now. Look, at, look really close at some of the early photos. But okay. <laughs> I, um, I had my father-in-law gifted me this now 10-year-old camera. It was in my closet. I'm a trained producer, so I produced videos, music videos, things like that. And I worked for a production company that was very photography-based, but I was a producer on their team. And one day we had a woman and my photography was very like, Oh, I'll shoot photos of my daughter. Cause she's a ballerina. Like it was very basic. I didn't know settings. I didn't know lighting. Ask me what my ISO is. I have no idea. Like I don't care about that stuff. So one day we had a woman come for a lecture for a conference we were having and she was a photographer. She was an army vet. Her name's Stacy Persall. And she was a wounded war vet that was blown up in a car in Afghanistan, but she was actually a combat photographer. So I didn't know that combat photographers are actually army service in the service. Like they go through boot camp, they do all of that. So um, she was wounded, got a traumatic brain injury, all the everything. So she started a project called the Veterans Portrait Project, where she takes photos of wounded war vets. She came and talked to us about starting a personal project that will help you heal yourself 
and in turn heal other people. And I sat there kind of as a seat filler because, you know, I'm mid forties and just wanted to get off my feet. And I was like, Oh God, I think I have to do this. Mm-hmm. And I talked to her afterwards and I said, I think, I think I might have an idea. And she said, Oh, and I told her all about it. And she said, you need to do it. And I said, I have a really old camera. And she said, perfect lighting and it doesn't matter. And I said, I, I don't know anything about lighting. I said, you work for a company that makes photography classes, like take a class. <laughs> and I was like, and she said, the only reason you don't do this is because you're not ready. And I was like, no, 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 I'm ready. So I sat with my husband and we came up with a name and fortitude was, um, it was really kind of grimy to me. It kind of made me think of a Viking kind of rising from a battle that was really hard and they almost didn't survive. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's kind of where the name came from. And the faces, I re- it was really important to me that I didn't tell people stories because so many layers are in those stories that I can't tell them. And there's something really important in the growth process about people telling their own story. Mm-hmm. And so that's what this project started as. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to take a few pictures. I'm going to, well, she looked at me first and said, your first portrait needs to be of yourself. And I was like, ooh. that's huge and then I said I don't like photos of myself and I don't like to take I don't know how to take pictures and she said well you need to figure out why you don't like photos of yourself and make them so you do and so I sat in a room by myself with a light and I just adjusted until I liked it and I realized the things I didn't like about photos of myself were the vulnerability I didn't like when I got vulnerable my face kind of I had a different chin and I didn't, you know, some people call it ugly crying. And I had a mother growing up that told me I looked like a witch when I cried. And so I was determined to make it so that people liked photos of themselves when they were crying without editing and without making it fake, but just making them feel kind of hugged by the shadows and by that safety that I was providing. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do a few photos, like my brother's friends and maybe a few family members. and it exploded and I was so overwhelmed. Um, and so it kind of started, the ball started rolling from there, but I really didn't expect any of what is happening. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not surprising, excuse me, everybody, I've had a cold. So if you hear me clearing my throat, I'm so sorry. It's like bad, bad production, right? (laughs) No. Um, but, uh, you know, when you look at them, it's like, it's perfect. Like, I mean, and that's just, and that's probably part of the beauty of it is like the art, it was just there, right? right? And you can't expect a result from art. It just, you do it and then it just happens. And when it's, you know, to me, when it's pure and honest, not that we're trying to get into a philosophical discussion about art, but when it's genuine out there and it's raw, then it's, it, it is, um, the catharsis of it is so amazing. And so when you see the pictures, it's like, of course you needed to do this. And of course it needed to be done. Of course it exists in this world for a reason, you Mm -hmm. know, um, without it, you know, we're missing so many opportunities here. And so I think that's actually what makes it really pretty amazing. Um, you know, as you were talking there, I was feeling like that, you know, your motivation, my motivation was the same was that I needed to do something that healed me. And then I wanted other people to benefit from it, which is exactly why I started podcasting set up a studio in my room and just started to go. Had I podcasted before a little bit, you know, had to teach myself all the things too, video editing, sound editing and everything in order to be able to, you know, do something that I felt, you know, was doing both was quality and stuff. So I, I like, I can relate to, you know, and then when it kicks in, you're just like, well, now I can't stop. Yeah. So do you feel like now that you're going, like there's, is there even an end for you on this project? Or No. And that's, just, it's so great. I get a lot of people that say, so when is the project over? And it's the most asinine question I've ever heard because I'm like, oh, um, is, suicide, is there an end date for that? Right. 
right? I am. I I had a talk in San Diego where I was talking about purpose. And I think, you know, we all have as a mom, I think you can relate to this when people ask before you started all this, before all of this trauma that started purpose, if somebody were to ask you what your purpose was, I think most of us mothers would say to be a mom, to be a partner, to do good for my community. And I think those were our answers for so long. We do for so many other people mothers in general, and I hate to be biased because I know a lot of fathers work really hard, but it's different. And so I think for so long, I have a wonderful husband and a wonderful daughter who are both creatives and who are both in the entertainment industry. And so I was a momager and a wifeager for years. And I was behind the scenes and I did everything for them. And I lived for them and I lived for our family and friends and had, you know, dinner parties and all the things. And Finally, when I finally started seeing a therapist, she was like, what have you done for you? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, um, I mean, I'm, I look at this daughter that I have and look at this, you know what I mean? And she was like, no, that's all connected to somebody else. Like, and when this project literally exploded in my face and I didn't know it was going to happen, it was this undeniable force behind me, pushing me. And I realized that's what purpose felt like. And I was like, oh, and I stood differently. I held myself differently. My chest opened, like everything changed Mm -hmm. and my confidence changed. And I was like, Oh, this is what purpose is. And so a lot of people look at me and go, Mary, your purpose is really dark. Like this is a really dark topic. Sure. But, uh, I'm really determined to not make it dark. No. And it's actually, and you know, describing purpose is interesting because I tell people like, I can't tell you how it's going to feel like when you get to your purpose, because, you know, so many people search for it. They, they want to know what it is that they're supposed to do or what, you know, and, and I've said, you know, if you've ever experienced childbirth, I remember the, the first time, you know, they're telling you like, you'll know when you're in labor and you're like, are you sure I'll know if I'm in labor? And they're like, you're yeah. going to know when you're in labor. <laughs> you know, and I've said that that's what this is like. Yeah. You can't, you, you can try to think and, and you can second guess, like, is this what purpose feels like? Is this, but once it happens, you know, like you like, it's done. Like I, I'm here, I'm at it. Like I get it. Like I get right. it now. And it's so sad that that's not something that you can describe to other people so that they'll know when it happens right. or, or right. give them a path to make that happen. Like right. you know, they have to do it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Now um, you talk about having a narcissistic mother. That's actually one of the topics that we've covered quite a bit on one broken mom, because it is an, an extremely painful source of trauma for a lot of people when you're, when your main caregiver is emotionally disconnected. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, and lacks just complete empathy. Um, it, you know, and so again, I resonate with that experience there. And I can imagine for your brother as well, you know, that it may it not just what happened to you, but having that type of a mom in life. Um, it, I mean, it's emotionally jarring, especially when you don't feel like you have resources and outlets and stuff like that. Um, how did his experience seem like in the household different from your experience growing up? Like, did you guys see what roles you were placed in, in, in your family? Yeah. I mean, we have a sibling between us. And so my brother was the youngest and I was the oldest. So we were seven years apart. So a little bit different generations, but you know, I was definitely the oldest that was, uh, you know, expected to be the role model and be and of course when that happens we do the exact opposite and so he was the baby he was the one that was doted on and he was the one that was the Yale graduate he was the one that was the prom king he did so well and so perfect and so I think he felt a little uncomfortable watching our mom be um 
combative and judgmental of us and not of him. Mm. I think it put him in a hard spot. I also think, and this is um, probably more information than my family wants me to share, but here we go. I'm learning that it's not about demonizing the person that's sharing. Why don't we talk about why it happened in the first place? Exactly. And that's what this show's about. So go for it. Yeah. Um, she's had like three, she's on husband number three or four. And um, one was uh, my stepfather's best friend growing up, you know, nine out of the 17 years they were married, it was happening. And um, she took off. Uh, she was going on a vacation to which she just never came home from because she was found out while she was there. And that was when my brother, my sister and I were out of the house, but he was in high school and he was having lunch with his, his mom every day. And then she went on this vacation and never came home. He was a totally abandoned oh. and that he was a senior in high school. So that year is when I believe most of the red flags started for us, for his mental health. Mm -hmm. um, so while I don't blame her, for his mental, for his suicide, because I know better and I'm educated enough. I do blame her for triggering his mental illness, mm -hmm. plain and simple, because of that selfish act. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that I've, you know, dealt a lot with in therapy <laughs> because I didn't have that mom figure that was ever really nurturing. And then I had a stepdad and a dad that left when I was two and, you know, a third husband for her. So, um, I've had to do a lot of my own kind of reparenting mm -hmm. and um, work really hard to be the kind of mother I never had. Um, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm so happy to say that I'm best friends with my daughter and um, it's nothing like what I was raised with, um, but I had to work really hard at that. And part of it was cutting her off absolutely, totally about seven years ago, finally, mm -hmm. um, because for a long time I took a lot of abuse because of societies, but she's your mom. Mm -hmm. um, and I just can't, I couldn't, it, it was like actually affecting me viscerally and physically for a while. Um, and my brother, I think he just wanted everybody to get along. I think he was, he was the eternal, um, empath, like everything hurt him to his core, homeless people, society, the world. He would talk to me about how much it hurt his heart when the family was fighting. He's like, can't you guys please get along? I'm actually was the one who got all of his things after he died. And he had journal after journal of a lot of very, um, very, very sordid uh, rambles that a lot of it didn't make sense but a lot of it was very family based and a lot of anger and frustration at fighting and infighting and how hard it was for him to watch it and handle it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it, he, he was very troubled starting, yeah. you know, at like college. Right. And he's, uh, I mean, and it's something too to be said that, you know, sometimes what happens in family dynamics is that when you have parents that are emotionally immature, uh, lack, differentiation. They don't see the world beyond right. their own needs and stuff, right. right? And then you have children that were born with, you know, more developed and, you know, empathic skills, you know, and this is where that nature versus nurture, right? Where the nature part is in conflict with the nurturing and the desire for this connection and this understanding. And when it's heightened by being more connected to what's going on in your world around you, it takes less you know, almost to, to cause this deep, deep harm and pain, you know, to children. And, uh, and it sounds a lot like that, you know, you had, you had a very incredibly feeling brother with 
people around him that were unable to, you know, to nurture that or provide that to him. And that's, I mean, that's devastating. Did he ever go through therapy at all at any point in time in his life? Um, when he, when we started seeing red flags and my mom was long gone, um, my stepdad, who was his birth dad. So he was my half brother. Um, but you know, I raised him from when he was little, a real, you know, I was there when he was born. And, uh, when the red flag started and he was at Yale in Connecticut, he started, you know, there were just, there were red flags that none of us were really sharing. Mm -hmm. And so because we weren't communicating, because we were a family that did not communicate about that sort of thing. And then it got bad enough one day that we had a family meeting without him and we shared our stories and we were all dumbfounded. Like, Oh my God, why weren't we talking to each other? We made a plan to try to do an intervention or get him to see someone. Um, but you know, he was, he's smart. And I, I think he, and this is my personal diagnosis is that he had undiagnosed schizophrenia, which is in my stepdad's family. Um, he, you know, that's the age of the mental break. And he uh, struggled a lot with some hallucinating and some voices that he told me about a lot. And um, the drugs that are normal um, calming agents for us, whether it's weed or um, did the opposite for him. And then the hallucinogens um, like acid or ecstasy were actually calming for him. So it was, it was actually very textbook. And so um, every time we tried to get him help, he was able to get out of it very intelligently and was able to switch it off and was able to quote some obtuse book from, you know, some Yale society. And I swear so many times I'd go, you guys, maybe he's not like having mental issues. Maybe he's just smarter than us. Like he was the first one to go to an Ivy league school in our family. So it was like, maybe I'm just stupid. Like maybe he's just like quoting all these things and maybe it's not, maybe he's just eccentric. Like we were really pulling at, you know, anything we could to kind of try to make sure he was okay. Right. So, right. To convince yourselves that it wasn't as dire as it, as, as it might've actually been. Right. Right. Because even when it happened, I think I remember my dad saying, I, w- I always was kind of scared that that call would happen. He said down the road, I was not that person. I did not see, I didn't understand that it was, it did. I was like, still, I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. It wasn't his Emma. You know what I mean? It didn't seem like he wasn't one. We weren't one of those families that were constantly having um, fake outs and calls and he was constantly attempting and we would find him in the hospital. Like that never happened. And I tell so many stories in my project of people that, have false alarms and have to go through that trauma. And that's almost worse than the trauma itself is going through that trauma for years like you've experienced. And so um, for me, it was so mind boggling because we didn't have those. And that almost makes the trauma worse because it's like a airplane crash. Your body is like jarred. Mm-hmm. Right. It just can't, it seems to come out of nowhere, but yet you guys also were seeing some things that may have been, kind of leading, uh, or at least maybe some indications. But again, it, it's, it's when, again, you go back to what I said at the beginning, our brain is wired to survive. And so mm-hmm. the concept that somebody would do something like that to themselves is not our base assumption. 
You know, yeah. our best assumption is to assume we all want to live, right? And that we can all have down days and dark days. And, um, but yet at the end of the day, we can't believe it's, a, it's unfathomable to think that somebody would actually go and take that next step to, to killing himself. And so he had made no attempts until the one and only. And how, right. old, and how old was he? 26. 26. He had just turned 26, like three weeks before. And I talked to him on his birthday. And um, yeah, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty for sure. Because now I'm looking back and now, and you know, I say this a lot. I got really sad the other day and said to someone, um, if I wish that I could be the person that I am now for him, mm-hmm. the person that knows all of this stuff and is so educated on this, because I really feel like I could help him. But um, of course, I'm this person now because of all of this. And so it's a hard it's a hard thing sometimes for me to go, why couldn't I be that person before? Mm-hmm. Um, but such is life. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, I sense that too, you know, part of my story is, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, call it what it is. I abandoned motherhood. Like, you know, I, I had to leave my family and I didn't leave my kids entirely, but I became the every other weekend parent, just like so many men do in mm-hmm. this society and our family, it was reversed. And so, um, but it is hard today to sit there and not think like, I wish that I had not been denied all of this knowledge and experience right, when right. I had my kids, because then I wouldn't be dealing with my daughter. And then I sit there and go, okay, well, obviously we can't turn back the clock, right? But you can do something now. You, you know, right. you are doing something today for this. Um, you know, I, we can't, uh, you know, definitely we can't live back there and stuff, but it is, I, I get that sense of, you know, a little bit of guilt, right? The survivor's mm-hmm. guilt that Absolutely. probably a lot of people really talk about here. Now, um, before you did Faces of Fortitude and, and started doing this as your purpose, when you identified as your purpose, had you been involved at all with any type of suicide prevention or awareness or anything like that? Yeah. So my brother died, um, 12 years ago now, and I've only been doing faces of fortitude for two. And so I, um, you know, I spiraled the first, my family was already dysfunctional. So after it happened, the first year was kind of spiraling and, you know, just already so messed up. And then I started going to a suicide survivors group about a year in, um, which I loved in the beginning. It was very helpful to hear people with other stories but after your first initial like year or two of grief, it's really painful to kind of pick that scab off every time because there's people fresh every time. So I did that. I did an overnight walk. Um, I found, and I'm sure I'm going to get some um, negative feedback from this, but I found the uh, suicide prevention walks and things like that a little too uh, corporate for me. They they were a little. Um, they were very money driven, which I totally understand raising funds for awareness, but I wanted more time to be spent on the interpersonal and the one-on-ones. And, um, that's what I do. And so I think that's kind of where it was the seed planted in my head is wait, but there's a woman crying in the corner by yourself after this walk. And you guys are preaching about how much money you made and nobody is sitting there talking to her. So, and that comes from being a high schooler that was bullied and, you know, all of those years. And I gravitate towards those people. So I did it for a while and then I um, kind of veered off and I started trying to help people around me without noticing it. So we had, my husband was, is in the music industry and he, uh, we would have house parties and I would invite everyone close to us. So like 50 people 
like once or twice a week, I would cook for everyone. And literally when they came in, I would make time to sit with every person. How are you? How's your life? How's things? And if you said anything but fine or good, I would make sure you could change it to good by the end of the time. Like I had to make sure everybody was okay. Mm-hmm. And after a while, Ryan looked at me and my husband and said, you can't, this is not sustainable. Like you need, you can't save everybody. There are still going to be people that die on your watch. You need to talk to someone. And I grew up in a family that therapy was just not a thing. Right. And so, um, and we didn't, I didn't have insurance at the time. And so I couldn't afford it. And I found a women's only sliding scale therapist here in Queen Anne and they weren't even licensed. They were women doing their hours to get licensed. Mm-hmm. And I was this like 35 year old chubby, didn't wear makeup, didn't really care about myself, was still grieving in the shadow of this really well-known Seattle musician just felt horrible, no confidence. I was just mad about life. And I went in there and she's this 24 year old, blonde, blue eyed, beautiful, whatever, you know, 90 pounds. And I was like, I literally sat back with my arms crossed and I just, it was, it was something out of a sitcom. And I just kind of looked at her like, what are you going to tell me about life? Like it was, (laughs) I was so cynical and she blew my mind. She blew my mind. She was amazing. She's still my therapist seven years later. She has her own practice. Um, And she unpacked it all for me. She was amazing. And um, she was my, my, I will learn to not judge anyone ever again after that. (laughs) But yeah, that was, that was kind of my trajectory to her was that she was like, you're not doing anything for yourself. You haven't done anything with this grief. You've helped everyone else, but you haven't done anything purposeful with this grief yet. So um, she was my trajectory to getting a production job and to slowly, now she makes her money, poor thing, in this project because I always need some venting every week. And so she really helps me with that. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, you know, so let's talk about, for the people that don't know the Faces of Fortitude, like, let's talk about the project and, and, and what happens. What's this experience like with people? Um, because it's a, it's a photography session with someone who survived it or someone who survived um, the attempts to it, whether it's parents or people themselves and stuff. And, you know, and I imagine just looking at how many times I'm like motioning over here at my phone with the Instagram account, just how many people you've experienced over two years. Like, first of all, how many people have you photographed in a two year period? I'm over 150 now. Wow. And that's a lot of stories. I mean, that's a lot of experiences there. And it's not just people that have lost or attempted. I also include first responders of suicide because Mm -hmm. That's a whole other side of it I didn't realize. Um, And it's something that in this conversation, I'm realizing that because I hold three different perspectives, I hold the attempt, I hold the loss. And now I'm not a first responder, but I'm an advocate. So I can kind of speak on three different. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm having different conversations every time and I'm learning something about grief and loss and trauma every single session someone shows me something new about how they process it. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so I started by just taking emails and um, very manual, everything (laughs) up until recently, everything was very manual. Actually. I mean, I was, people would email me. I'd say I have vetting questions because I put those in place very early on. 
about a month in, I didn't have anything. And um, I had a release, photo release. That was all I had. And about a month in, I got a message that was very concerning and very difficult. And they're all devastating, most of the messages I get. And, but I got one that somebody wanted to share something very sensitive with me. And um, it shocked me a little bit. And I went to my therapist and I'm like, I don't understand. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how, what to say to her. I don't know what to do. And she was like, listen, like people need a space to put this trauma that they've experienced. It doesn't mean you have to process it. It doesn't mean you have to look at it. It doesn't mean you have to read it. Mm-hmm. You just have to give them a place, the processing part and to help them with it. That's my job. That's not your job. Mm-hmm. So she reminded me of some boundaries and I put them in place really quickly. Thank God, or this would not have been as, you know, had this longevity if I didn't have those boundaries. Um, It's hard as a pleasing type A Capricorn Italian mom. It's really hard to not to have those boundaries. It made me feel like a horrible, horrible person in the beginning because I was like, well, I can't, but, but now I'm learning that they're, they're saving me. They're saving the project. And so, um, I used to be very manual. People would email me and I'd say, okay, here are my vetting questions. And usually it's like, how recent was your attempt or your loss um, or what you experienced? Do you have therapy? Which is a huge thing for me. Not that you have to have therapy, but I need to know if you don't have therapy, what you're doing for yourself. Mm -hmm. I will be very invasive and my questions can go very deep. And if you get upset, that's fine because we all get upset. I need to know that you're going to go home and be able to get yourself out of it because that's not my job. Right. And then um, I usually ask them a lot about themselves um, and what they want to share because it tells me a lot about how open somebody's going to be in front of my camera. Um, And then the Zach Williams photos happened, Robin Williams' son, Mm -hmm. and I had the chance to photograph him and I posted them and Instagram exploded and my followers and my messages exploded and my applications exploded. And I realized very quickly that I had to get a Google form in place so that I wasn't doing, cause were, everything was manual. It was copy paste into an email send. And I was like, Oh God, I just got 190 applications. I can't do that with this. So right. um, I put my Google form in place. Now it all shows up on a spreadsheet for me. Um, and I don't accept everyone. I, I it's based on, how recent their trauma was. It's based on how I feel about their mental place when they talk to me. Um, it's also based on my curation. I mean, I'm an artist at the, the core of this and I can't, I need to have a variety so everyone feels heard and everybody feels like they can relate to someone. So there are people that I've put on hold because I have a lot of, you know, 20 year olds that have attempted five years ago or, you know what I mean? And so I'm like, it's not that your story doesn't matter. It's that this is not the right time. And so I'll tell you when the right time is going to be. And um, I also get a lot of tourists. I get a lot of people who uh, pretend to be closer to the topic than they are because we're in an Instagram internet world. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of young girls that are like my coworkers, best friend's brother committed suicide. And then I go to their Instagram and it's all selfies and they've had like eight photo shoots in the last week and they're just looking for a photo. You know what I mean? And so right. I have to find a very gentle way to let them down easily and um, let them know that I am not a fool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And it's sad that that can happen. Um, it's also symptomatic of the, you know, a society where, um, you know, not being seen 
you know, not being witnessed in your family. And so we end up doing it through social media. You know, it's like a lot of people, I've I've had this conversation before with others that social media isn't the cause of these problems. It's just an outlet now that we have available to us. We didn't totally agree. Yeah. Before, you know, if you, you know, go back to, you and I are the same age, go back to the eighties and we wanted to be witnessed by anybody. We just couldn't be, you know, it's like I journaled. That was, that was who witnessed me was me, myself writing it out and able to read back myself because there was nothing out there for me to, um, to do, or, um, you know, I did drama, you know, I would do theater like that. And, and, you know, and I ran, I was an athlete. I think my athletic abilities and my athletic interests were the moment I could step on a track. And then finally I could see everybody in the stadium looking at me like for the first and only time. So I worked my ass off being a good runner because that was a moment in which I felt like somebody was actually paying attention to me, you know? Right. Um, but you know, with social media, it's easy for all of us to be, you know, witnessed in a variety of ways. And so it's not, it's not the cause. It's just, you know, definitely. Yeah. Now, what are some of these stories? I mean, like 150 plus stories, a variety of people out there. Um, what have you learned, you know, from people about their experiences going with, um, either surviving it or attempting suicide, um, that, you know, like you said, you mentioned you've, you're learning something all the time. You know, what is some of that? You know, I think, I think the main thing that I've learned, and I, it's not that I didn't believe this in the past, in the past, but it's so exemplified now. I, the power of the human spirit to survive something mm-hmm. is so immense some of the stories, some of the trauma that I have heard, I am shocked that that person got dressed that day. Like, what? I'm, I'm this eternal cheerleader across from somebody behind this going, like, can we take a minute? Can we take a minute and list all the things that you just told me you've been through, the stories that you just, your voice shook telling me about? Can we talk about the fact that you are a functioning member of society right now? It's huge. And not enough people give themselves that. And I think that is what that space is for, is for them to have, because most of our therapy sessions, if you think about it, are about 45 minutes. My sessions are 90 minutes. No one talks about their trauma for that long. And I talk about my trauma too. So it's not me interviewing them. I tell my story first. They can ask me any question they want. I get very detailed about my brother's death, more details than some people want. Mm-hmm. But it's really important that they see me get vulnerable first. And then it's amazing how many people will open up after I share things like that. Mm-hmm. And watching them navigate these things that they've never said out loud, a lot of them, is fascinating to me because I think they see their own strength. A lot of people in the end go, that was easier than I thought it was going to be. Or I can't believe I said that to you. Mm-hmm. And I always look at them and go, now you know what you need to do. You need to go buy yourself an ice cream cone <laughs> and you need to go celebrate yourself for an hour and tell, or go on Facebook and say, I did something really hard today because you did like you telling you telling the world in your opening statement about the struggles you've had this week and the struggles with your daughter. I'm sorry. My mom lied for years about the struggle she had with me because she was ashamed of it. That's huge for you to want to share things and share your own missteps in order to better yourself and be vulnerable for people. That's why they want to be vulnerable with you. And so I think I've learned the power that people have in their vulnerability. And if I get to be the one to tell them, hey, you're a superhero, did you know? Um, I love that job. Like, it makes me so happy to be able to show people 
just give them a mirror and, you know, not a real mirror, but a mirror that just shows them, reflects, like, this is what I see, and give them a tool. It's amazing watching people take this tool, this photo, these photos that I give them, because after I post them, I call it a two-part series. The first part is the session itself. The second, well, it's actually three parts if you think about it. The first part is the session. Second part is when I post to the world. But really, the biggest part for them is how they take it and share it with their friends and family and use it as a tool of communication. Some people don't talk to anyone about it for years. Mm -hmm. I've had somebody in the very beginning, two years now, is just now telling their family about the project. I mean, and some people cannot wait. Some people put it on their story as they're coming to my session. Like they're so excited to document the whole process. Um, Use it, like use me, use it as a tool um, to start these conversations. It's probably the best, the best thing, the best way to thank me is to, to use it properly, you know? And so I've learned that people are surprised at what they find in themselves. And I think that's the most, the most amazing part. I also love meeting people that have, stories that mirror mine, not that are the same, but I think that there's something to tap into. And that's what the TEDx talk is about. There's something in the space of conversation between not two people that have lost siblings to suicide, the person that's lost a sibling to suicide. And then that person talking to the young college kid who struggles with darkness, who attempted and survived and is now talking to his peers about you know, suicide prevention, him and I have a lot to talk about Mm -hmm. because he's showing me where he was in those dark moments. And I'm telling him what I've I've seen on my side and what I experienced and what those red flags look like. There's so much to learn between those two people. The um, first responders talking to the families of suicide loss and what they, like those families experienced at that moment with those, they think the first responders are being cold. They think they're not listening to them. They think that they were, a, you know, abrasive on the day that was so hard for them. And this, the first responders explaining why they have to be that way to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant conversation that I think I uncovered accidentally. And I'm realizing that it causes a lot of healing. Mm-hmm. And it, it creates a lot of healing between these people. And so that's what I'm trying to create are these conversations um, and not encourage people, not that they shouldn't go to these survivor groups and talk to a bunch of people that have all had lost, but there's something a lot more powerful in talking to someone who's on the opposite side as you mm-hmm. in the same arena, you know? Yeah. Totally. And I mean, it's so many thoughts are going through my head right now just listening to you. You know, one is, um, you know, the beauty of this with being able to, you know, for people that have gone through trauma and have grown up through trauma, we have um, we have learned how to survive on an empty tank of gas. We've learned how to survive at the bottom of a, of a well, you know, and we don't realize how unusual and how strong we really are. And it sometimes it does take a therapist, you know, or somebody to sit there and look at you and go, first of all, what you're doing is fucking heroic and it's not normal. And if no one has told you how amazing, you know, you, what you are doing is today, then I'm going to do that for you because we have learned to accept the fact that we are supposed to fight our way through life. 
and survive our way through life. And there is this amazing opportunity to turn a corner and thrive our way through it. But if the, if the fighting and the survival is the modus operandi for us every single day, then it doesn't seem all that unusual that we can show up and put our clothes on after having, you know, dealt with, you know, the numbers of things that, you know, some people have had to go through. And so you know that it's called something, you know, that there's, there's PTSD, mm -hmm. but there's also PTSG. Oh, I PTG. I was speaking at an event and I was talking about finding my purpose through this trauma and like being a, my better self. And this doctor came up to me afterwards and he was like a, he's, he was a professor and he goes, you know, there's some, there's, there's a medical term for what you've experienced. And I was like, what? I was shocked. And he said, it's post-traumatic growth. Mm. And it's someone that takes their trauma and literally becomes a more grown and better person than they were before their trauma. And I was like, what? I know you just gave me goosebumps right there. Right. I (laughs) had no idea it was a thing. And he said, and the fascinating part is your whole talk was a perfect example of what post-traumatic growth was. And you didn't even realize it. You have taken your trauma and used it to help yourself become better. A lot of people, and you know, have a career and start a purpose and be a better person. And I didn't even know it was a thing. So, like you're saying, like you're doing the same thing. We're just it's it's almost taking our survival to the next level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's an, I, I've had a lot of goosebumps during this conversation with you. <laughs> First of all, um, I'm a Capricorn too, so Are I'm just sitting here going, "Yeah, I think we might be like long lost sisters here." Or something. Okay. I don't I don't even know. Um, well, but, now we have to like discuss our charts later and your rising and all that. Right, exactly. And since you're in Seattle, this will be super easy. Okay, <laughs> um, now, you know, we talked about the fact that you, you follow up your sessions and you have to go, uh, go talk to your therapist. Cause I was curious about how being, um, you know, I know that when I do my episodes and my interviews, it's hard for me to not get triggered by some topics, especially when we talk about emotional abuse and we talk about, um, again, emotionally immature parents and narcissistic parents. I have these conversations to engage and learn, but having them sometimes subjects me to, my chest tightening up and, you know, my, my own feelings and stuff like that. So I can, it sounds like that that's a, that comes with the territory for you as well of when you're meeting this, that you're going to end up, you get triggered sometimes by these, um, these experiences and these stories, right? Yeah. I've learned to start to curate my sessions a little bit. So I don't, so I'm like, I'm shooting on Sunday here in Seattle and, um, they're not all the same. So they're not all I made a mistake in Florida when I just shot because it was a last minute shoot and I shot three loss, suicide loss in a row that were all brothers Mm. that had all lost brothers. And it was too much for me. And I really had a hard day. Um, But usually I don't, usually it's like a suicide loss, an attempt, like a a first, I I try to jumble them up if I can, because, um, and people at different stages of their grief, because the early stages, I deal with a lot of um, feral, type um tears and emotions and that's really hard for me to watch and sit and be able to have to take a photo and feel gross about it because I want to really just give them a hug and you know what I mean and I stop and I do hug them but it's like um I want people talking to people that are 10 15 20 years out in their grief too is a great gauge for people to see where they can be at that time so um my my triggers are way more now um, young people, the teens, uh, I don't do anybody under 18 unless their parent is with them in the room and I've talked to them intently. 
And the few teams that I have done, um, I, I don't regret doing them, but they were huge triggers for me. I mean, one girl, literally, she was a dot. She's autumn is a daughter of, um, one of my high school friends. And so I didn't really think much of it. And when her mom left the room and she told me she had a suicide plan for the next week, I mm-hmm. started to sob. Mm-hmm. I rolled my chair up to her. I was ugly crying, pleading with her. And she was so frightened. She was so scared. She looked at me and she was like, I'm seeing a new therapist next week. I think I'm going to be fine. And I looked at her and I said, I'm going to have to look at your mom and tell her that you're okay. And I can't do that. And she now is now doing grief art and selling her art online and has benefited so much from sharing her story and is on such a great trajectory. Now she's one of my favorite stories, but that was a trigger for me. Mm -hmm. Um, My nephew was also a face and he was a trigger for me. Family's hard for me. Um, But the biggest trigger is probably my inability to be able to help everyone Mm -hmm. that emails me. It's not even in the sessions. Um, After Zach Williams, my emails, like I said, exploded and I put an auto reply on, but I had a tidal wave of emails that came before that, that needed responding to that before I put that auto reply on. And so I spent 48 hours where I didn't sleep, where I was just answering emails and everyone was more traumatic than the next people that were like, Oh my God, I saw your project on the news and I didn't know this existed and you're saving my life. Stories of eight year olds taking their lives. Like I was like mortified. I I couldn't, every time I wanted to take a break, I was like, I would find another one and go, she has to be responded to this poor mother. And at one point I found myself sitting at my window, uncontrollably sobbing just staring out the window. And my husband was like, you need to take a break. And I was like, but these people. And so that was a trigger for me was, uh, I was an empath that was being smothered and I needed a break. And I still refused because I'm a stubborn Capricorn. And I was like, I have like five more emails and then I'm going to be done. And I went to replant a plant because I'm an earth. And so I know that that kind of, it relaxes me. And I had a cactus to replant and I thought it didn't have any um, whatever they're called pricks or whatever. Oh yeah. I know what you mean. Um, the things that you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, and it didn't have any by looking at it. And so I replanted it and everything and I was cleaning up my dirt and my hands were on fire. Oh, and I was like, Oh my God. And I looked really close and they were like hair, like all over my hands. Mm-hmm. And it was literally, my husband was like, so you realize this is the earth telling you, you can't touch your computer or your phone. Like, you need to just step away and take a break. And it really was, I was like, okay. And it was a mandatory, you know, 48 hours of nothing just so I could get my bearings back. And so my triggers are way more that I wish I could help everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and my therapist, as, as my therapist would say, we're working on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the stories I'm doing a good job of, of creating boundaries for myself now, but there are a few every once in a while. I will cry, not every session, but most only because I want people to know that it's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm also, I'm an emo- emotional person, so I can cry very easily, but <laughs> Yeah. You know, there's a quote that um, is kind of like a motto. It's by Edgar Allan Poe. 
and uh, it was in a letter he had written. So it wasn't actually anything that he'd actually published as a poem, but it was, um, it's, uh, it was my choice or chance or curse to adopt the cause for better, for worse. And with my worldly goods and wit and soul and body worship it. And I have that for me because I feel like sometimes when we, we find purpose, it doesn't come with a hundred percent pleasure. Um, sometimes it leaves us wondering why we ever did this to begin with, because especially when we're feeling overwhelmed with the, the pain and the suffering of everybody we wish we could help and those that we can't. Um, but it certainly is as if in some ways, again, like it was, you know, I chose to do it some days, some days I feel like my life cursed me to do this. I, I don't know what it is, but, um, we end up finding ourselves on that path. And so it's one thing that I always, you know, like I said, it's a quote, I'm going to end up having it tattooed onto my arm. Actually. I love that quote. I've never heard it. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I, I feel that, you know, when you talk about that, because, um, you know, once you turn that on and you make yourself available to the world, everybody does need you and you do have to make sure you don't get swallowed, you know, by everything. Cause I get emails too. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, you know, what am I going to say? You know, mm-hmm. to this person, how can I guide him? Cause I'm not a therapist. You're not a therapist. We both have all, all of our own baggage. You know, I talk, you know, I talk about, it's a backpack of trauma, you know, on my back that comes with me, you know, when I go places and, um, it's going to be there, but, um, you know, but that doesn't change the fact that, you know, we're here doing this, trying to, you know, trying to help people and stuff. And so, um, so I want to kind of explain again and just kind of wrap this up with everybody. What, what faces of fortitude is, is it a show that you do? Is it just individual portraits that you're doing for people? Like, and what are the different manifestations of it? Cause I think you've done both. You've actually had gallery showings, mm-hmm. um, but then people actually, um, and are you, and I have to ask you this, are people paying you to come and do this or are you doing this out of donations or free? Mm, that's such a good question. <laughs> Um, no, I'm not being paid. Sadly, I've spent um, all of our money on this. And um, I'm realizing now I don't want to be a nonprofit. Um, I think I will never charge people for the actual sessions. That's just gross. Um, I don't think I'll ever actually be sponsored for the for the sessions for the photos because I don't want to have to put, you know, this portrait was sponsored by sponsored by I just think that's gross. I think that that's not what this is. Um, I've decided that I do, I mean, it, it is, it, I'm, you've caught me at a little bit of a crossroads right now with the project because it's drained me of everything that I have to be able to keep it sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a Patreon that I ha- have people donate to every month that is a small, but very, I'm very grateful for it, amount that helps with things like luggage when I travel and things like that, which is great. Um but it's not, it doesn't sustain the project. Um, so for now I use it for things. If, if I get paid to go to do a speech somewhere, so I'm trying to separate the entities. So faces of fortitude will always be nonprofit. If they're a photo session, I always will find a location that is a photo studio that I will reach out to the owners. And if they have a connection to this topic at all, they will almost always donate the space to me when it's dark, when they're not using it. Mm-hmm. So my sessions are always around donated studio space, which is so helpful. And I've had 99% of the people I have approached have let me do it. And they've right. been lovely because it's a, because of the idea, everybody is connected in some way. If you look hard enough, um, then the exhibits have all been funded by me. And so it's just um, showing I've had two, in Seattle. And then I'm part of one that's in Florida that's standing still. 
Um, and I've had a lot of requests for me to bring pop-up galleries to certain like universities and stuff, but it's, it's expensive for me to do that. And so I'm learning to put the right price tag on it. And, um, a lot of people want me to come out for suicide awareness month and things like that. So, um, I'm, I'm separating the entities now. So if you want Mary Angela to come and speak at your event and do something like my TEDx or talk about my project or being self-taught or what I've learned, you can pay me for that. And then when I'm in that city, I will do a free faces shoot with people that are approved with people that are vetted for the project, which I have vetted and approved people in um, over like 57 cities over the U S that are just sitting and waiting for me to come. So like when I went to Florida, they paid me to come be part of that exhibit, set up my gallery. And then I was able to do a shoot while I was there. So that's kind of how it's going to be able to work that way. I can make the choice to use my income Mm -hmm. that I have excess of, or that I, after I pay my bills or whatever that I can use on the project and it can still be seen as my purpose and my passion and my choices. And I don't have a board and I don't have, you know what I mean? Um, because right now the grant process or those there, they want an end result. So they want to give you money for something that you're trying to create. This is an ongoing project. So it's a little bit harder to get a grant for that so far, maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. I'm not very grant fluent. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm trying my best to trust the universe on this. I am a little, like I said, at the crossroads. So I'm getting a little nervous because I've got to focus everything on my TED talk right now. And, um, Hopefully after that, that will provide a little bit of leverage, but I'm hoping to not um, get to a point where I have to put this project on the back burner because I can't sustain it. Yeah. So we're kind of in that place right now that I'm trying to figure it out. I got you. And so for anybody that's actually listening or watching on YouTube here, I will have a connection to her Patreon link. Um, It's on her website and I'll also have that in the podcast notes for anybody. And if there actually is anybody listening that has some experience in non-for-profit grants, especially around the um, areas of mental health and um, small organizations um, like Mary Angela, by all means, send me an email or send her an email and let her know what you guys might know about in terms of giving her a hand with being able to get some support. Because this is an amazing project. It, 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 like you said, it took off for a reason. It took off because it has a purpose out here, not just yours, but just, it has a place in this world with, um, showing in a way, um, the real humanity behind, again, the largest killer in the United States. You know, it is, this is a devastating effect on many, many families. And, and like you've said it even on your website. And as we know, in this realm here, very few people are willing to talk about it or able to talk about it. You know, I've had guests on one broken mom that um, they sharing their story of uh, loss is the first time even most of their friends have heard them talk about having a parent that committed suicide when they were children. I mean, it's, it is one of those, one of those really scary topics. And yet it is the not talking about it is why we end up seeing it so much out there. And we have to end this. Like we have to, you know, we have to do something about this. And so mm-hmm. your, your project is vital, you know, to that part of it. It's also, like I said, when I sit here and listen to you, um, you know, we have to be able to affect change in a lot of different ways. It all doesn't happen from the corporate, you know, the corporate route, you know, the big fundraising route, um, because we all connect differently. And so it takes a lot of people and sometimes it takes rebels to kind of come out of the corners and, you know, and be comfortable with lurking in those shadows, you know, to get to connect with people because not everybody fits down, you know, one pathway moving forward. And so this is just this 
complete act of defiance to what's out there, but yet in that beautiful way that people, you know, didn't know they needed until you brought it to the world. And so I'm grateful to have met you and talked with you about this and to be able to bring your project to awareness for everybody that's out there listening to, to my show. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiricone.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kirkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.